0: Welcome to the man overseas podcast where we talk about the journey to financial independence much of it through real estate We also talk about self-development and investing, especially in yourself So it's all under the theme of self-improvement Something I talk about a lot is the importance of surrounding yourself with good people and how you're going to attract what you become so if you're leveling up in all of life's most important areas, let's say If you're putting effort into building relationships and getting your financial house in order, setting goals for your business, reading at least a book a month, at at least a book a month, you know, that's 12 books in a year, which is 36 books in three years. And the great ones you'll want to read more than once. So maybe you'll read some of them twice. I've been in Mexico for two months now. And I packed an entire suitcase just for books. (laughs) And yeah, I paid an extra 50 bucks or whatever it cost me to check a suitcase. But having those books with me is way more, it means way more to me than what the $50 would mean in my pocket. And guess what? All of those books I've already read. But why do I do that? Well, because I want to go back over what I've read so that I better absorb the contents of those books and grasp the ideas to the point where over time, I've internalized what's in those books so that when opportunities present themselves, I can pounce, I can take action immediately. So knowledge for its own sake won't do you any good. You must apply what you've learned. So after you hear my conversation on the podcast today, I've got a big time guest. Um, If he fires you up or you hear an idea that might drastically improve your life and that of your family, I encourage you to take what you've learned and apply it. Our time on this earth is limited. So whatever you're going to do in this life, get it, get after it, start building a habit. You know, my friend Chase Lambert on episode four said that your habits are who you are. So choose wisely. You can start a new habit now today. So building a reading habit is for me, it's I think it's one of the easiest ways to separate yourself, especially in these, in this day and age of social media, because everybody's addicted to those little dopamine hits that people are getting from notifications and likes and comments and, Frankly, there just aren't a lot of people reading books and what you're doing by immersing yourself in books is retraining your brain, how to concentrate. So many of us are are distracted nowadays and I can almost, I can almost guarantee you that half the people in your line of work are not studying those who've been successful. Those in the top 10% of their field are always reading something. They have books on their nightstand at all times. And I don't care what line of work you're in. If, if you're in the top 10% of your field, you are going to be highly compensated. And when you're highly compensated, you can build an extraordinary life. And, and what you're doing is funding contentment if you do it right. So pick up a book if you're curious. Um, the books I'm traveling with, um, The Millionaire Mind, it's a classic. It's sort of the, se- the follow-up to The Millionaire Next Door. I have The, the Automatic Millionaire by David Bach with me. I have What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, which is a memoir by Haruki Murakami. I'm not a long-distance runner, but I love the book. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find better prose it's that good. Um, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. I have Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I, in fact, I haven't gotten on a plane in, in the last four years without that book being in my carry-on. So that's how much I value meditations. The Learning Curve is here with me. I've got about 10 others that filled my suitcase. So I could, you know what, I could probably do a solo podcast where I talk about the books in my suitcase. Um, So yeah, maybe we'll do that. Because I want to introduce my guest. Let's get to it. Um, His name is James Lowry. He's from RethinkTheRatRace.com. He's the founder and purveyor. Of RethinkTheRatRace.com. When I was a guest on Bigger Pockets, I talked about how to arrive at your financial independence number, and that was by accumulating 25x your annual spending or being able to live on 4% of your net worth per year. Well, James and his wife, Emily, have achieved their financial independence number in three years, which is amazing. Um, they did it through sheer hustle and frugality and taking advantage of tax advantaged accounts. And they're also big real estate investors. So we'll have a lot to talk about. So let me introduce my guest, James. Welcome to the podcast, man. How are you? I am doing great, Brad. How are you? Everything's good, man. I appreciate it. Let's, um, let's talk about the popular blog you've developed. It's aptly called Rethink the Rat Race. And I, I love that name. Where did that, how did you come up with that?
1: Well, actually, it's, it's funny you say that um, because initially it was the rat race rejects <laughs> and um, somebody had already taken that URL. So uh, we had already paid for um, someone to make the uh, logo on Fiverr. And, um, and there's actually a, a Christian rapper named Andy Midio, And uh, he, has a, he has a song about uh, the rat race. And so, uh, so we had heard that song and we thought that it was a pretty apt name. And so, uh, so that's, that's pretty much where it came from.
0: That's cool. When you first contacted me, you said that it was like looking at an older version
1: of yourself. Do you remember that? <laughs> I absolutely do. Yeah. I remember, uh, I remember pretty much almost word for word, your entire, uh, bigger pockets podcast. It was, uh, it's definitely my favorite episode so far.
0: Oh, thanks man. Uh, well, I've seen pictures of you on Instagram and I must say you are not a younger version of me. <laughs> I thought I was into health and fitness, but you are uh, way ahead of me. How do you get looking like that?
1: Um, honestly, that was, uh, that was my previous obsession and, uh, still, um, probably equals my obsession with, uh, finance. Um, I've been, I've been obsessed with physical fitness, uh, pretty much since, uh, since I could start working out. Yeah. What age was that? Um, well, actually I started working out, um, with football and things like that sports in high school around 13 or 14. And, um, and I didn't really take it seriously until I was about. Eighteen or nineteen, and that's when um, I really saw, you know, how um, how much health can really affect your life. And so that's uh, that's when I really started diving down that rabbit hole. Cool. Yeah, it really
0: energizes you, right? So I'm sure you still have a workout routine. Maybe you're just not as obsessive about it.
1: Yeah, it just means that I get up earlier in the morning. I get up uh, and I'm usually at the gym around four thirty or so. So I still get in my, you know, hour and a half to two hours at the gym, and then I just focus on other things after that.
0: That seems to be a pretty common theme of high achievers is that they
1: get up really early. Have you always gotten up that early or close to it? I, um, I, I'm I, i not a big sleeper. I know that everybody says that you need so many hours of sleep. And recently, I've been working on that. My wife uh, is a good influence on that. But um, I would much prefer to get up early in the morning because um, staying up late at night, I typically just... Uh, sit on my ass and watch Netflix or, you know, I mean, something useful like reading is always good and stuff like that. I'll do that, but I'm not as productive. So I usually find that, you know, four thirty, five am nobody's in my way. Nobody's up doing anything. And I'm not going to get up that early just to sit on the couch and watch TV. So that's usually when I do most of my writing and my exercise and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So I guess you go to bed early too, huh? Um, not typically, you know, I'd say between uh, 10 or 11 or so.
0: Man, that's good. Yeah, some people can survive with less sleep. I remember reading a a biography of John Gruden, you know, the NFL coach, when I was in my twenties, and he used to get about three or four hours sleep a night when he was rising the ranks to become, I think, what was probably the the youngest head coach in the history of the NFL. Um, But he would sleep on the couch in his office and only get three or four hours sleep, and he said that he could thrive on that. And I don't know. Have you ever listened to the podcast? I believe it's a yeah, it's a Joe Rogan podcast with Matthew Walker. It's about the value of sleep. You probably wouldn't listen to it <laughs> since you don't.
1: Need it. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't actually listened to that one. I've listened to quite a few of the Joe Rogan podcasts, but I haven't heard that one. Um, I know that uh, Jay Leno has kind of. I'm not sure if he coined the term, but he's also well known for not needing a lot of sleep, and uh, he calls it non-somnia. And uh, so it's like insomnia, except, you know, you just don't need to sleep to function. And I went through all of college sleeping, um, you know, three, maybe four hours of sleep a night for three or four years. And only recently um, have I started sleeping a little bit more than that. And most of that was due to melatonin. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah, that, that podcast
0: really encouraged me to get more sleep. So I average about seven hours and 15 minutes. I'm pretty precise about it. Um, but yeah. It, he said that the number of people that could survive and thrive on six hours sleep or less rounded to the nearest integer was zero. <laughs> so it's something like one in a thousand that can thrive. But one in a thousand is a pretty big number. I mean, if you had lottery chances that were one in a thousand, I, mean, I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd probably buy $10 worth of tickets. So. Yeah, that's pretty good chances. Yeah, you probably are one in a thousand. So
1: speaking of lottery chances, are, are you... Have you always been good with money? Um, actually, quite the opposite. Um, I've became good with money, particularly over the past three years. Um, I'm really good at frugality, mostly because uh, that's the same thing as being poor. So I'm really good at that. <laughs> why, why are you good at being poor? Um, so gr- growing up, my, uh, my family um, wasn't very well off. Uh, I'm ch- the third child of two deaf parents and my parents got divorced. And, um, and so my mom, uh, pretty much raised us by herself uh, off of income that she received working night shift at Walmart. Um, so, you know, we're talking barely above minimum wage, um, with three kids. And so, uh, so I grew up pretty, uh, pretty poor. I distinctly remember, you know, the electricity getting cut off, um, cars getting repossessed and having to go out with my sisters and go get all of our things out of the, out of the van while the uh, tow truck driver was waiting for us. And it's, uh, I mean, it's pretty sad, but, um, that's, uh, that's kind of what made me, um, as motivated as I am today to, uh, to not be in that situation ever again.
0: That is powerful, man. So you, both of your parents were deaf
1: and they divorced. How old were you when they divorced? I was in, I guess, second grade when it actually happened, so I guess, seven, maybe, um, yeah and uh and you know a few years later uh my dad actually passed away um he passed away when I was um 14 and so uh so it's a tough time and uh and you know it's just um it's one of those situations where you know you get through it and it makes you you know stronger than you were before and you know not not really a whole lot bothers me anymore
0: man that I'm I'm, wow we have a lot in common so you didn't grow up surrounded by privilege. Where did you grow up? What part of the country?
1: Um, so I grew up in a rural city in North Alabama. Um, it's called Priceville. Uh We um, had, I think, maybe about 100 people in our graduating class. So not a big school. Um, and so that's that's pretty much where I grew up. Uh, and actually, just uh, I'm, I'm still in the area. I only live about 30 minutes from there.
0: Mm.
1: So where did you learn good money habits being in a small town like that? Um, yeah, I didn't really learn them from, uh, from anybody in the town. There were a few people that were well off. Um, but you know, most, uh, most people, um, were really good at faking it. Like a lot of people tend to be. And, uh, and so I actually found out about it through, uh, Mr. Money mustache, um, about three years ago. And once I read that, you know, his, uh, his stoicism, his kind of, uh, take it or leave it attitude really. Um, spoke with me a lot. Uh, I, I liked uh, his writing style and stuff like that. And so I really went down a rabbit hole there. And um, for every waking minute, pretty much I was reading that blog. <laughs> That's cool.
0: Yeah, I'm a fan of Mr. Money Mustache too. Pete is his name, right? Right. Yeah. Cool. So I know in, in terms of your investing, I know that you invest in real estate, but are you also taking advantage of pre-tax accounts? Are you employed? Tell
1: me about your current situation. Yes, yeah, so both my wife and I are employed with typical W-2 jobs. Um, she's a systems engineer and, um, and I uh, manage um, eight physical therapy clinics in North Alabama. And uh, so our pre-tax, we, um, we max out Roths and 401ks. Um, and so uh, after that is anything that we put into real estate essentially. Okay,
0: and I know that you wrote an article about going from one rental unit to nine units in less than a year, right? How did you do that?
1: Um, so definitely frugality first. Um, that's the that's the number one thing. I, obviously, there you know a lot of very creative ways that you can get owner financing or put no money down or do the Burr strategy or all these different things. None of ours were very sexy like that. We went to the bank and grovelled for money, um, just like normal people do when they go and get a mortgage. Um, mm-hmm. We just happened to to save first, and uh, and that gave us disposable income to put, you know, 20% down or 25% down if it's a multifamily um, on a bunch of properties in one year. So it just, it just so happened that, um, you know, I was scouring the Zillow, MLS and Craigslist and even Facebook daily to, uh, to see exactly what was up um, on the market that day. And I watched it multiple times a day. I, I knew every house on the market uh, inside and out That's cool. So you were inspired by Mr. Money
0: Mustache first, and then you found bigger pockets and then started looking at Craigslist and Zillow or what order did you find? Like, how did you get inspired and what motivated you? Where did,
1: did it start with Mr. Money Mustache? Yeah. Funnily enough. Um, I read the, the four hour body by Tim Ferriss. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I kind of stumbled upon the four hour work week and he talks about, he talks about passive income. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, once I found out about passive income, I kind of stumbled upon bigger pockets. And, you know, there was a lot of high level stuff in there. And this was when I was probably um, 21, maybe 22. And I just really um, kind of limited myself and thought, you know, this is never going to happen. So I kind of forgot about it. And then when I ran across Mr. Money Mustache, um, I already kind of had a predisposition to real estate. And so that's, the, that's really the order. I found out about real estate before I found out about financial independence, but financial independence is what led me to actually start in real estate.
0: Man, that's great. Reading always leads to more reading,
1: right? Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you also wrote about living in a 650 square foot living space. Is, Is that
1: you and your wife shared that small of a space? Actually, um, it's even smaller than that. Now, um, we had a condo that was about, um, about what you're talking about there 650 square foot give or take um now we live the exterior of our apartment um is is about 400 and some change so the interior is even less than that once you take into account closets and the bathroom and stuff like that wow and your wife's on board with this huh yeah it um it took a little bit of coaxing but um she uh Um, you know, once I, once I found out about Mr. My Mustache, that, that kind of writing doesn't really speak to everyone. And so, um, you know, essentially she came home one day and I told her that I had found this, this blog that told us that we could retire early and that she wasn't allowed to go shopping anymore, essentially. (laughs) Uh, and so that, that doesn't go over very well when you're, um, when you're not willing to compromise. And so, um, so I kind of took it a little easy and, uh, got her on board and she kind of realized how quick, um how quick it can accumulate if you're, if you're being mindful about it. And from that point on, she's been down to move just about anywhere. Oh, that's really cool.
0: Yeah. I, my wife is the same way. She saw how fast it could accumulate and uh, it didn't take much convincing. Also being able to see, you know, once you get out of the United States, how, how fat how far a dollar will take you. And so, yeah, yeah, it makes the sales job a little easier, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it does. And I like what you said about how Mr. Money Mustache doesn't speak to everyone. I I say this too, that if there is someone who inspires or motivates you, how important it is to revisit that content because we all hit lulls and we get complacent. And
1: I mean, do you procrastinate every once in a while? Um, You know, I like to think that I don't, but, um, but obviously I do. Um, There are times where, you know, I I don't want to do this or don't want to do that. And then I just, think about how much time I'm trying to, you know, shorten off of my work life. And so that kind of motivates me quite a bit because I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to squeeze 30 years of work in three. So, so that, that's definitely a motivating factor to keep from procrastinating too much.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And then you can revisit Mr. Money Mustache if you ever don't, if you ever need a swift kick in the ass or you could visit uh, the four hour work week and, you know, if you're like me, you have highlights in the book, the four hour work week, and then you don't have to sift through the whole book. You just go straight to your highlights. And that might be the motivation you need. Or you can go to the gym and listen to a podcast that fires you up. Man, I'm with you. I like all of that. So do you have a real estate license? You
1: mentioned looking at Zillow and the MLS. Do you have a real
0: estate license to buy your
1: properties? I, I don't. Um, I, I had actually signed up for, for um, some real estate courses. But then I decided like my wife and I decided, you know, we're only going to buy one or two more. So, is it really um, worth the time investment and things like that? Especially if we're not planning on staying here and maintaining um, maintaining that license. So, um, I'm I'm just happy to be lucky enough that I live in an area where um, the public has access to, to the MLS. We don't have access to quite all the information that's on the MLS typically, but um, but I can find most of it myself anyway, just through resourcefulness.
0: Oh that's interesting, yeah, I live in Houston, and the general public doesn't have access to the multiple listing service, but I know that that's something they fight over in the legislature quite frequently so I hadn't talked to anybody that did that didn't need a license to access the MLs so that's that's pretty powerful, right I mean it's really helpful. you kind of cut out the middleman
1: yeah um i still I still have a realtor, and uh, we just essentially bring her. Up all the deals that we're interested in going to check out most of the time we submit offers sight unseen. And then once we get it under contract, we'll go and check it out. But, um, but yeah, so I mean, it's, it's pretty useful because then I can see them immediately. I can kind of run the numbers on it and, uh, exactly what you're saying. I can kind of cut out the middleman. And there are times where, you know, a house will just be listed within a couple of hours and I go ahead and send her saying that we want to make an offer and then we'll drive by it after the fact. That's perfect. I like that. I
0: do think that you should always have a realtor involved in some capacity because they really do add a lot of value. So do you do the work yourself? Like what kind of houses are you looking at? Are
1: they generally houses that need a lot of rehab or how do you think about that? Um, Most of them are pretty much rent ready. Um, You know, just a little bit of curb appeal, you know, some paint. Um, Usually we go in and we paint some cabinets or we do this or that. I have done some more extensive work um, on one of our duplexes that we have, but it's not something that I would prefer to do or or something that I, um, like to do a lot of. I pretty much tore a bathroom down to the studs and replaced everything from, um, all the way down to the PVC pipe, the drains, um, and put in new showers, new, um, vanity, did the drywall, did all the plumbing, did everything. I hated it, honestly. Um, so Uh, it was fun at the time, but looking back on it, I probably could have paid someone and saved myself, you know, weeks of hassle to do it. So most of the time what we do is we just buy places that are pretty much rent ready and, um, and then kind of paint them and do things like that just to increase the curb appeal. And then, um, and then we'll up the rent a little bit just to, uh, just because it, it looks so much better
0: yeah tell me about the process so you you look on zillow you look on the mls how many properties do you think that you analyze versus go and see versus make an offer on versus buy
1: that's a that's a great question so at the beginning i was probably analyzing i mean not probably i was analyzing every deal that came on the market and that was when i was trying to become kind of the expert um or at least uh be as familiar with our area as I could be. So I was looking at every single listing, looking at um, you know where it was located in the city, what that would rent for. Um, and so I just wanted to try to memorize it. So now anytime I look at it, I know exactly what area it is, how much that would go for and rent if it was a one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom. Um, and so just being able to be familiar with the entire area like that has been very helpful. Um, I probably... I've probably analyzed, I mean, I know I've analyzed thousands of deals, um, and I've put in offers on probably, I'd probably say about 50 or so. Um, and you know, we, we have 11, so that should tell you how many actually come through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. When I was buying rental properties, it was about 12 or 14 that I would have to offer on before I would get a house before I'd close the deal. It's crazy. People don't understand how much effort and how much persistent it takes, how much persistence it takes. And you're doing all this outside of your W-2 job, right? I mean, a lot of this work is probably done on nights and weekends, early Saturday mornings. Um, What house, what price range were you looking at for these houses?
1: So we've got them. they vary pretty widely. Um, the most expensive one we've got is a three bed, two bath house or a three bed, two and a half bath. Um, and it was 115,000 and, um, we've got a condo that we bought and it was 43,000. So they all fall somewhere within that range. Most of them have been on the lower end. Um, we've got 43, we've got um, a 47 and then we've got two at 49. Um, and so that's, that's really the, the lower end is, um, where we started just because those were the ones that were more affordable to us as, as quickly as we were trying to accumulate them. And most of those are actually duplexes. Wow. Okay. So
0: people are wondering where exactly do you live? Do you, are you, you 30 minutes from a a big city or anything?
1: So I actually live and invest in Huntsville, Alabama, which has gotten quite a bit of traction recently. So it's uh the the good deals. Everybody thinks the good deals are always dried up, but um you know, we our area has gotten mentioned a couple of times on Bigger Pockets on the actual podcast and you can just search for the area on the keywords and there, are, you know, a thousand forum posts that pop up. And so um it was very um ironic that I became an investor in an area that now people are really looking at. And so I just happened to get in uh, early while the getting was still good. Oh, dude, that's awesome. So your equity is increasing significantly
0: since it's being mentioned on podcast, because I imagine a lot of people are investing remotely now,
1: right? Right, absolutely. And so I've actually had a bunch of people asking me um, just in the various groups that I'm a part of, um, you know, if I could help them point out different neighborhoods or different things like that. And uh, you know, I'm of the mindset that a rising tide raises all ships. So I'm more than happy to help point out any direction anybody wants to go. Um, I I don't have any qualms with that at all. Yeah, I noticed that to be a
0: common trend in this open internet world that we have. So like, um, if you listen to the Tim Ferriss podcast, he will tell you exactly what he does, the equipment that he uses, how he markets the podcast. And he says, because 50% of people won't do it anyway. (laughs) And then 40% of people, um, will do it and then make some suggestions to him, like as a reciprocation type deal, but they won't be as good as him. So he doesn't have to worry about it. And then 10% will be better than him. And then they'll be sharing all that they've learned and then he'll benefit. So anyway, he's got a cool little formula, but you're right, man. It's, it, it's always good to be generous and share what you know, because it always comes back to you and you're benefiting from it, right? Because if they buy when you don't, then they're jacking up the price
1: of the, the, uh, the value of your house. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my wife and I just a couple weeks ago went to an auction that was down the street from a couple of duplexes that we have. And ours are a little bit nicer. Ours are a little bit bigger. Those ended up selling for almost double what we paid for them last year. So, um, you know, some people would, might be worried about, you know, the, the, I don't know, the volatility of the market, I guess. But uh, I I thought about telling people to just go ahead and go down the street and we would sell another one to them. (laughs) That's great. So have you paid any of them off or do you plan to pay any of them off? This is something that we go back and forth on quite a lot. My wife and I, we weigh out um, the options and we've talked about paying off a couple of them. Um, A couple of them are so low that, you know, it's not um, a huge amount. We're talking, you know, mortgages of a little over thirty thousand, and And so we talked about paying them off and, but instead we just closed on another townhouse yesterday. Actually, um, we closed on the 11th unit that we have. So, uh, so we, we chose to not pay one off instead and to put a down payment on a nicer place. Wow. You are always moving
0: so you you own like baltic avenue and what's the uh, the less expensive properties on Monap- on monopoly
1: yes those are those are my bread and butter uh i want to be on that side and you know they're just down the street from boardwalk so that's right
0: <laughs> dude that is so true and i'm the same way i do the same thing all of my properties i bought for less than 100,000 so we have so much in common i think you were right what you said that first time you contacted me we are uh, different versions of each other so that's cool so you are you living for free right now that I see you in, in on your blog that you do not have rent or
1: a house payment right now? Uh, yes, that is hundred percent true. So we bought a house that, um, that has a detached mother-in-law apartment off of it. And uh-huh. so my wife and I live in the mother-in-law apartment and rent out the house. And so our tenants just through their rent, pay our mortgage, um, our utilities. That's even after we take out the 10% for vacancies and maintenance um, down to the internet, they pay for literally every expense that we have here um, and the last time I ran the numbers on it, I think we actually netted a um, dollar <laughs> so I had a tenant about
0: three months ago. I had to meet for some reason i don 't remember what the reason was, but she said, "I saw you on bigger pockets, and I thought, oh no i i didn 't want that. Do you have any qualms about if, if your tenant were to hear this or if any of your tenants were to hear this interview? Um,
1: no, not particularly. Cause I think everybody needs to place to live. And uh, the idea that we are open about it makes it better than, um, than the other people. You know, most people think it's a lot worse than it is. You know um, if they, if they look at how frugally I'm living, they can see that this isn't some easy thing for me to do. Um, and so actually my, my tenant that lives next door to us, he, he, frequently reads the blog and has listened to a couple of the podcasts that we've been on. And I'll come out, you know, we post on uh, Tuesdays on the blog and I'll come out, you know, Tuesday evening or Wednesday, and he'll be talking to me about the most recent blog post and what he thought about it. So it's pretty ironic.
0: Oh, that's cool. So you and your wife are W2 employees right now, correct? That is correct for the time being. Okay. So you say for the time being, so you have the intention of exiting the rat race. Do your employers
1: know that? Would you mind if your employers heard this interview? I wouldn't mind if they heard it, but um, they don't explicitly know, I don't think, at least. Um, You know, I recently got a promotion at my job and it's kind of one of those situations, I think, like office space. Um, You know, once you become confident in the things that you're doing, you know, it's not that I just come into work and don't care what I'm doing, but, but this this isn't uh, a means to an end to me for, for at least for my W2 job, for the real estate it is. And so um, for some reason that just, uh, it, it magnetizes people to you. And so I became the next in line for a promotion. So I wasn't going to turn it down because I thought, you know, that might be a bigger indication that something was up to them uh, if I turned down a promotion that, that, you know, I'd been kind of clamoring for uh, earlier in my career. Man, that's good stuff. Yeah, when you become a good steward of your money, it seems
0: that you get more money, right? I think um, that might be a biblical principle, but uh, you've taken care of your, your money. And, and since you're so strict with, with your budgeting and your discipline and your fitness, all of that affects everything else, right? And then you become better at your job and because you're more energized from working out and eating right and getting, a, you know, you don't need the sleep, <laughs> but I do. Uh, when are you planning
1: your exit? So we are talking about uh, potentially um, later this year in September after uh, FinCon, the financial conference meetup in, uh, in Washington, D.C. So we're talking about potentially when we get back from FinCon, turning in our two weeks notice after that point.
0: Oh, very good. So my wife and I will be at FinCon also, September 4th to September 7th, right? If anybody's interested. Absolutely. Yep. Washington, D.C. Cool. Yeah. Are you guys planning to do anything else
1: besides attend the conference while you're there? Um, Not particularly. There are a couple of things I want to do. Uh, Gallaudet University is there, um, and this is completely self-serving, but they're uh, one of the largest uh, deaf universities in the country. And so outside of their campus, they have a uh, Starbucks that only uh, accepts orders and only does anything in sign language. And so, um, so we def- I would definitely want to go there. That's like a big goal of mine is to, to go and hang out in a Starbucks where, you know, pretty much no one is speaking. Oh, man, that's cool. So um, going back to your exit, what, what would you and your wife do if you decided to leave the rat race? So we, um, we are discussing and are planning on going to Cyprus. Um, my wife's father is from Cyprus, and so she recently got her EU citizenship. And so I've applied for mine. And um, we are talking about moving to a small island in the Mediterranean. Uh, My wife's grandparents actually have a um, a detached mother-in-law suite from their house. And so they have an apartment that they currently rent out. And so we were talking about uh, renting that out and uh, renovating it and making it a little more uh, habitable for, for people to come and stay for vacations.
0: Man, you are redefining the term "mother-in-law," <laughs> you are making it a really good thing. <laughs> good for you. That's great. And so, Cyprus is. So, I'm sure I'll have some listeners in Houston. Cyprus is a suburb of Houston where I went to high school. But that's not the Cyprus you're talking about. You're talking about a small island in the eastern Mediterranean, right? Is it south of Turkey? And yes. Israel. Yeah, so it's
1: uh yeah, it's pretty close to all that over there, but it's not actually like there's not anything bad going on there. It's uh the the Middle East is obviously well known for being tumultuous, but um but it's mostly Greek. Um half of the island is Turkish. Uh, it's currently invaded by Turkey, um, but it's very um, calm. There's not a whole lot of uh, animosity going on over there. There's no like killings or you know bombings or anything like that. And so, uh, so it's actually, it's actually the, the essential island life. Um, every time we go, everybody's very easygoing. Most people speak English and, uh, and everybody it's, uh, people, people aren't into the rat race there. It's the exact opposite uh, issue here. People are overly motivated to get to the next thing and do the next thing. And there people just kind of take it as it comes. Yeah, I hear that. So have you been to Croatia? You know, actually I have. My wife and I have been to Croatia twice um, and we love it. It's one of our favorite countries. We have actually talked about moving there as well. Whoa. Okay. So Croatia might might be my
0: favorite country in all the world. And when you said that there's no bombing in Cyprus, the first thing I thought about was how in Dubrovnik there was bombing as recently as the early nineties, right? During um, the Yugoslav. Uh, they were, it was bombed by the Yugoslav army. And, um, so I guess you never know. So be safe my friend. But <laughs>
1: yeah. well, that's yeah, it's funny you say that though because I mean Dubrovnik is one of the the most beautiful cities in the world and that's actually you know where we typically go when we go to Croatia so you know something something uh beautiful can still come out of whatever happens. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, you're right. So the last time we talked, you mentioned geo-arbitraging your plans, and that's a really big word, plans, right? <laughs>
1: no, I'm kidding. No, really. What do you mean by geo-arbitraging your plans? Um, so geo-arbitrage essentially uh, utilizes lower cost of living or different costs um, and moving around to, to make that suit our lives and our lifestyle as as best we can. Um, so essentially because my wife has gotten her EU citizenship and because I've applied for mine, um, the healthcare costs in Cyprus as a, as a citizen are extremely, extremely low, much less than the health crisis that we're having currently in the U S. Um, so for instance, um, I, I looked into it and, uh, to visit a primary care physician is $4.00 And to visit a specialist is $8. And that's it. That's, that's all you pay. Um, And so that's, that's really one of the key questions in early retirement is how do you pay for um, health insurance? Because that's always tied to your job. Well, if we go over there, then we don't have to.
0: Oh man, I have a relatable story. So a few weeks ago, my wife was sick. We're in Oaxaca, Mexico right now. And she was feeling so bad that she couldn't make it to the Um, the doctor's office which is at the bottom of the mountain where we're staying and so I went there on her behalf and I told her told the doctor in my limited Spanish what the problem was and she said that she could come and see her at our house and I thought oh that's going to cost a fortune and when the taxi pulled up I told her that uh, you know of course I'm going to pay for the taxi but how much does it cost to get you to the house and she said 100 pesos and I said that's I didn't say this, but that is, I did the math in my head. That's $5 and 49 cents to have a house call from a doctor in Oaxaca, Mexico. And she provided the same antibiotics that you would get in the U S and she was well within 24 hours.
1: It's, it's, yeah, it is amazing. That's the exact word for it. Um, it's, it's amazing. Also, uh, this is one of my soap boxes that how, um, you know, we as Americans somehow feel that healthcare around the world is less than, because we pay for more, we think we're getting more, but we don't have the highest uh, life expectancy. We're not even one of the highest in um, in the developed world. So it's it's really crazy, um, the, the different mindsets that people can have in different places.
0: Yeah, I love the idea of moving to an island too, like Malta. I have a, a friend who lives in Malta, and so that's an island in the Mediterranean too. And I do suspect that the life expectancy on an island like that is higher. But the downside of moving to one of those islands as I see it is, so my wife and I are going to Prague in a. Um, our next trip is to Prague. And from there we plan to train to places like Munich and Vienna. And I have some clients that are meeting us there and I'm gonna tour them around that part of Central Europe. But one of the beauties of, of being able to do that is just getting on a train and you show up to the train and you don't have to go through security. It's so easy. You can get there five, minute,
1: five minutes before it leaves. You guys are going to have to fly everywhere, right? Or do you take a boat? Um, you can take ferries and things like that, but really flights to, to Athens um, is probably the, the most common thing that people would do. But once you get to, to Athens, you're pretty much in mainland uh, Europe. And so you can kind of use that as a hub to, to travel around to other places. I agree. That's probably the biggest drawback, but also one of the, to me, it's also one of the benefits is that um being on an island, there aren't as many um I would say there's not as many tourists. Um, you know, there's a different lifestyle on the island. People are a little more easygoing. You know, if you're if you're on mainland, people just always seem to be trying to get to the next place. Even on vacations, you know, they're just focused on trying to squeeze in as much stuff as they can in their limited amount of time. And so uh so there there are benefits and drawbacks to the to the same thing. It's just like anything else in life, I guess yeah how much do you anticipate living on when you're in cyprus so um i l- looked it up and uh the the typical um income there is around 20 to twenty five thousand dollars american mm-hmm. and so um and that's that's the average there and um and so we we are planning on living on probably a little more than that but um we're just planning on living on more than that because we're pretty frugal anyway we like to um The things that we enjoy typically don't cost that much anyway. So, um, you know, the occasional meal out or something like that. But, you know, um, her grandparents live, you know, within walking distance to the beach. And there's actually like a boardwalk gym there. And, uh, you know, swimming and um, exploring and spending time with their family and all those types of things aren't really going to cost that much money. So um, we're making almost uh, right at $30,000 a year just off of our real estate income. And uh, so as long as we can keep it under that, then I'll be definitely happy. And that's not counting the the 401ks and the IRAs and stuff like that, that we could still be gleaning money from if we absolutely need to.
0: Yeah. And the beautiful part about living off of real estate income is that your 401ks and IRAs and all of that, you're not touching that,
1: right? I mean, that continues to grow for the next 40, 50 years. Right. And so the um, there's, a, there's a rule of thumb that says that it typically doubles um, every seven years, I think is the, the rule of thumb on that. And so, um, so yeah, we're, we're planning on not touching them hopefully until, uh, until we absolutely have to, but, uh, the goal would be at that point that we can kind of do the fat fire thing and live kind of lavishly and things like that. Mm-hmm. But at that point also the, some of the rentals will be paid off. And so, you know, I, I suspect that we'll, we'll have more money coming in than we know what to do with. And yeah. people typically make money even though they're not seeking it. So I'm not particularly worried about it.
0: That is so true. You do end up making money. The rule of thumb is what I remember is that the your 401k balance, let's say, should double every 10 years if you get a 7% return. But you have that's to, said, okay. yeah, you need to account for inflation. So yeah, but that's you're absolutely right. I, which leads me to my next question. Do you think that you would have pursued FIRE if, we hadn't been at the tail end of a 10 year bull market, or at this time for you, you would have been, what are you 28? So you would have been about 25. Do you, um, do you think you still would have pursued it if you hadn't seen up into the right throughout your working years?
1: Yeah, actually, I think that, um, you know, that's, that's a great question, because there are a lot of people I think that kind of are on the fire train. And I, I hate to put anybody down, obviously. But I think once push comes to shove, and the market drops, that's when we see who is really living by the fundamentals, like living on less than you earn. And you know, it, the money's coming fast and easy now. So what are people going to do when it becomes hard? And, uh, and I know that I'm resilient enough that it, it wouldn't matter what market it is once I saw the light of financial independence and the life that it can bring you. Um, and just the, the ease and comfort. Um, and it's just, it feels natural to me to pursue it. So, um, so I I definitely would have either way, whether it's a recession or whether it's, you know, a bull market or a bear market. Um, so I'm not, I'm not too worried about that, but it's a great question. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a growing phenomenon right now, but that's also because we're, uh, like 10 years into a bull market that, um, that has been great. You know, nobody's, nobody's really losing money unless you're picking stocks and that's just unfortunate for you.
0: (laughs) But even if you are, you're probably up on 80% of them. So many people are convinced they're a genius, right? Unless
1: you're you're in Bitcoin. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Those are great points. And I assume that stoicism resonated with you because of your upbringing. I mean, that's how it was for me. I'm like, wait a minute. I've been practicing a lot of these principles for years and years. And it wasn't until later in life when I had a lot of time to reflect to realize how much what I went through as a
1: kid shaped the way that I am today is is that what you're thinking too yeah, absolutely um you know once once you go th- through hard times like that you know the the times that most people would think are hard um really aren't aren't shit um, <laughs> yeah I, I mean it's really this is like. People, people look at my wife and I as if we are sacrificing so much, you know, like even when we bought the house that we currently are living in the apartment of, you know, people are asking us, why aren't you living in the, in the house? And I'm like, well, it's three bedrooms. Why would we live in that? You know, and people see it as such a sacrifice. We drive older vehicles like her, um, her 97 Camry that she got when she turned 16, just broke 300,000 miles and we're still driving it. And, um, and people, people look at it like, like we're crazy, you know, but then they also hear that we have, you know, 10 properties or 11 properties or however many we have. And so it's, it's, it's hard for people to, to see the rationale, uh, to us, but to us, it's, it would be crazy to live any other way now. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Adaptive simplicity. I just read a book called the geometry of wealth. And I'm, I don't know if he coined the term for the first time, but I love the idea of Um, adaptive simplicity, when you can simplify your life, you really, um, how you need to strike the balance between progress and enough. And that that's at the core of, uh, enjoying a wealthy life. And, you know, he doesn't define wealth in terms of just money. It's also relationships and spirituality and all these things. So, yeah, man, I I think you, um, you hit the nail on the head. I, I love to talk to other writers too. And um, if you don't mind, I'll switch gears here to writing because I'm curious about when you started writing or what prompted you to start writing or what is your writing process like? Can you just talk to me about your, your writing if you don't mind?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so we started writing a couple of years ago and um, it essentially started out as just like, a, okay, let's track our path to five. our path to financial independence or retirement. Um, And so it became more of a, if I'm writing about it, then I have to live by it. You know, Um, I I don't want to be one of those people that is uh, do as I say, not as I do. So if I'm writing about it, then I have to be living it. Otherwise I'm not being truthful on anything that I'm publishing. And so why would anybody trust or believe anything that I write? So that was the initial motivation behind it. And it's become something that, you know, I really enjoy. It's a creative outlet. And, um, I think that most people need a creative outlet, whether or not they have one. And, um, and so that's just become one that, that my wife and I both enjoy a lot of, um, my writing process. I, um, I try to look at everyday life. And so I have notes on my phone that, you know, it grows every day. Um, you know, I think about something or I see something and it, it sparks a thought in my head. And so that's just an idea, um, for an article. And so I'll just write the idea down. And then from there, I try to expound on it. And so, you know, I might have 50 ideas on there that haven't turned into anything, but then, you know, I have the 10 that that have. And so it's just something that, um, that's the process that I have. I just look at everyday life and, uh, and try to use that as an inspiration for, you know, a, a hot topic or, you know, something that somebody might not have thought about. And, uh, and we write mostly about real estate, I would say, um, probably about 20 to 30% of our posts are on real estate and then everything else just kind of spatters in there. Um, my writing process, I, I like to listen to background music and I like for it to either be early in the morning or late at night when nobody is up bothering me. Um, I don't want any notifications on my phone. Um, I, I just want to, to be by myself with the computer and I can, I can write pretty, pretty precisely, um, or concisely, sorry. And, uh, and get my thoughts out a lot quicker that way. Um, it's kind of like the, I don't know if you've heard of the book, deep work. Um, you know, once you focus on one thing, you know, it it becomes so much easier to complete that task as opposed to spreading yourself across 10 tasks. Um, so that's, that's one of my, that's one of my big focuses is, um, when I start on something, I want to, I want to give it the attention that it deserves. Otherwise, um, I'm wasting my time and everyone else's time while I'm doing it.
0: I like that. Yeah. Cal Newport wrote deep work and so good. They can't ignore you. That's right. a guy that has become, he's probably, Maybe a little older than you probably a little younger than me and I think he's a professor at Georgetown University if I remember correctly but he has been so successful even without social media and um, yeah his books are really resonating I, I think it's become even in more in vogue even more in the last few years for a, a similar reason to what not meditation yeah meditation I guess because People are so distracted that they need something to help them concentrate and a book like Deep Work just sort of explains why it's so important, right? And then if you do Deep Work well, then you become so good they can't ignore you, right? Your writing starts to um, generate an audience for itself. So yeah, that's cool. We probably have read a lot of the same books. Do you have a favorite book in terms of what informs your way of life or your writing or, or anything outside of um, maybe
1: Tim Ferriss? Right. I, uh, I really like, um, I know you've talked about before millionaire next door and I like the millionaire mindset. Um, I try to try to read those at least like once a year. Um, I also like never split the difference. It's more of a, a, a negotiation book, but, um, but I also like richest man in Babylon because it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's not like incredibly old or anything, but you know, it's from the, um, mid 1900s. And so, um, it's it's so amazing how the same fundamentals that would get you rich you know a century ago will get you rich today you know um you know spend less than you earn invest the difference and um just be mindful of uh of what's coming out versus what's going in and so uh so that's one of my favorites is richest man in babylon as well yeah that's awesome yeah i love those three too I met with an author yesterday
0: who has the outline of 18 books and he's only published two. And what he was telling me is exactly what you said. When an, when an idea pops in his head, he will put, he'll make notes. And then I've heard, who was it? Uh, Jason Zweig, Jason Zweig. I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's a writer for the wall street journal. I believe he's written there for 20 years or something, but he'll say that there's no such thing as writer's block because when he, when the thought of, having a block would come into his head if he's sitting at a blank screen he'll just start writing about something else from what he was thinking about writing about and then he'll come back to what he was going to write and i do that too so i have a a lot of unfinished blog posts in my wordpress but if i sit down let's say i got up this morning i made my coffee i sat down to write if i couldn't if i was writing a blog post about financial independence and i couldn't think of what i wanted to write well then i can just go to my my article on relationships and try writing about that based on something that maybe i already have a piece of
1: is that sort of do you think in that way too yeah absolutely um so typically i'll start an article um or two or three and um and sometimes it feels forced so then i'll just go back to my notes and see okay which one of these things can I expound on right now in my head? Like, how can I make this work into an article? And so, um, you know, it might be a one-line thing and then I turn it into, okay, well, what are five different things that I can go with, with from that? And so, you know, I'll jump around from article to article like that as well. Um, it's, it's whatever I'm feeling at the moment. Sometimes I'll look at something and be like, that's a terrible idea. And then the next time I look at it, I think, okay, well, you know, these three things have happened recently that make me think that this is a better idea. And these are the ways that I can write about it. And so I never, I never fully discredit something unless it's just absolutely terrible. <laughs>
0: yeah, and we all write badly sometimes, right? But it's better just to keep writing badly than to stare at a blank screen. It's just to get started. I remember there's a book that I read called The Artist's Way, I think it's Julia Cameron. And she talks about the morning pages where you wake up every morning and you just write three pages. It doesn't matter what it's about, but that's designed to stir your creativity, just the process of dumping whatever is on your brain onto the page. And then that's supposed to get you going and make you really creative. And I've found that it helps.
1: Yeah. I could probably do that with about three sentences.
0: (laughs) No, I see you say that. But so my wife and I, since I have the Yeti mic with me now, we tested it earlier. And what we did was recorded what we were saying in order to make sure the sound was good and everything. And so I would tell her to talk and she would say, well, I'm just going to read something because I'm not good at improv. And then when it was my turn to talk, I would just like look at the door and just start making stuff up about, making stuff up about the door and then the window and then to the wall, you know, and just kind of take it from there. But I, I kind of enjoy the improv. So you'll fit whatever. If you tried that exercise, you'll finish with some stupidity on the page. But I'm telling you, like by page four, how, your thoughts will be better organized. Anyway, I recommend it for anybody listening who's thinking about writing. It's a really cool exercise that I didn't believe in until I started doing it. So whatever that's worth. Um, so other than big, Bigger Pockets and Tim Ferriss, do you have a favorite podcast?
1: Um, I do like Choose FI. Um, they're, they're one of my favorites. Uh, I like the, the FI Show. Um, and that's a couple of younger guys who I can kind of relate to myself. And, uh, so they talk about, you know, financial independence and things like that. Chad Carson has recently come out with a podcast. Um, and he was one of my favorite bloggers or still is, I I can't say was, um, he's one of my favorite bloggers because, um, his talking about real estate and things like that. And financial independence is really what kind of turned me on to, to real estate and financial independence. And I actually like his book a lot, um, retire Early with real estate. Which was produced by Bigger Pockets, I believe, and so I I am a podcast fiend. Um, What's up next podcast? I listen to Joe Rogan, uh, Tim Ferris. I like anybody that's at the top of their game, especially, mm. and uh, even the Fire Drill. I mean, not even, but also the Fire Drill podcast and uh, House of Fi. Um, I, I listen to to a lot of financial podcasts. Obviously, is mostly the the brunt of what I listen to. And are you listening to it for information or motivation or both? Um, A little bit of both. Most of the information I feel is uh, sometimes just repackaged versions of another podcast that I've listened to. Um, There are very few novel ideas that come down um, that that I haven't already thought of or hasn't already been expounded on in a a longer blog post. But I also know that I probably consume more uh, information than most people do. So those are probably very useful for other people. Um, I do it more so for the motivation of it and just to get the ideas of you know, what people are doing or even to get someone's backstory. I enjoy that a lot to see what someone came from and what they're working towards. Um so really the story of it is what sells it to me as well.
0: Speaking of stories, what story from your thirties do you hope to tell your
1: grandkids someday? <laughs> That's a great question. Um you know I'm twenty eight now so I think the the uh the idea that um if and when we have grandkids, that you know, just the idea of being um, adventurous enough to quit our jobs, even though you know the future is never certain, you can obviously stack the odds in your favor. But the idea of being a slave to your job and continuously working because you're scared to do something else or because you're um, ignorant of what what else can happen with your life, I think just being able to to tell, you know, my grandkids, great grandkids, whoever they are, um, that, you know, we took a chance and created a life that we wanted. And so, because of that, you can do the same thing.
0: Dude, that's a great answer. What, uh, what is your favorite app on your phone that not too many people know about?
1: Um, that's a great question. I don't even have my phone on me, so I couldn't say, Actually, I already <laughs> know what it is. Um, is probably Libby or Overdrive. Um, those are both audiobook apps from the library um, because most of the most of the audiobooks I listen to um, are checked out from the library, so I don't pay for them. And uh, and so I've been listening to. I just finished uh, *Sapiens*, um, and so that was a really good book. I liked it. And listen to Richest Man in Babylon* again while I was painting a house, and so that's that's probably the my favorite um, apps that I use are audiobook apps. Man, that's cool. Yeah, somebody showed me Libby just the
0: other day, and I'm sold. So you just you go to Libby, and there'll be a limited amount of books that you can download, right? Because the they must be licensed as the library to only have so many copies. Is that how it works? So it could be checked out, and you would
1: be able to. Exactly that, so we we are actually every time we go somewhere we try to become a member of their library and we steal other people's library information. It's such a like silly thing, like everybody else is stealing you know um, Amazon Prime accounts or Netflix accounts, and we're stealing people's library cards so that we <laughs> have access to that library's books yeah. and uh, one of my favorite parts about libby is that the the limitation that I have on the podcasts apps and stuff like that are that they only go at two x speed uh, well recently i've been messing around with Libby and I'm getting up to two and a half, two and a quarter, depending on what the, what the topic is. And so I can, I can knock out a book, uh, incredibly quick like that. And it, it goes up to three, but at that point I can't understand it. It's gibberish. So I'm trying to work my way to it. (laughs) Oh man, that's good. So what was the other one you mentioned besides Libby? Uh, it's called overdrive. It's the, the exact same idea is that, um, it's, it's a, an app that you can use to, to check books out from the library and uh, listen to audiobooks on that they have they have um, ebooks on there as well i'm i'm a physical copy or an e- audiobook i don't i don't really do ebooks my wife loves them but i just can't uh, i can't bring myself to do it i i'd rather have a physical copy in my hand any day of the week but if i'm doing something then i'll try to do the audiobook instead
0: yeah i've also read sapiens and of course the richest man in babylon i'm a big fan of but as a Netflix shareholder, I should say that I don't like when people share accounts. <laughs> do you Do you know that Netflix has 30% of all internet traffic at any given time? Isn't that amazing? I, I can't believe that. And I know they're going to get some competition from Apple and
1: uh, Disney plus is trying to come out with a streaming competitor, but. We've recently started using Hulu and we also use the Amazon prime streaming. Um, but, a majority of our streaming is Netflix.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We watch Netflix too. Not a lot, maybe once every couple of weeks. Do you have a favorite show that you're watching right now?
1: Um, right now we're watching, uh, we're, I think we're a little late to the party, but we're watching the Marie Kondo, like the cleanup stuff. And uh, Emily told me last night that she was a little worried about me watching it because she thought that she would just come home to an empty house today. Uh, because <laughs> I am, a, I am a minimalist through and through. And so um, just the amount of things that we even have in our 400 square foot place um, gives me anxiety. I would much prefer to have you know, a barren existence of five items and, and just live that way. So, uh, so that's, that's what we're currently watching. I am a big documentary um, themed. I watch a ton of documentaries. And so um, any of those that I can get my hands on, I pretty much watch. Did you know that I was going to ask what your favorite documentary is? Because I, I, I do want to know. I had no idea that you were going to ask that. Um, I have a couple that I really like. The Bleeding Edge is a good one on medical equipment and how we think that the pharmaceutical industry is this big giant, and actually the the medical equipment industry is even crazier. Um, I'm also a big fan of wine, and so there are two wine uh, documentaries that I really like. One is called Psalm, and it's about Um, a few people that are trying to become these master uh, sommeliers and uh, they're tasting all these wines and it's just on another end of the spectrum. But then the other one is called Sour Grapes. And it's essentially like um, that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio called Catch Me If You Can. It's essentially that, but with a wine person. He ends up like frauding millions of dollars worth of wine and all these supposed experts um, don't know the difference between his mixed up cheap wine and they're you know ten thousand dollar bottles and uh so that one's a really good one too (laughs) sour grapes and psalm you said yeah s-o-m-m psalm psalm oh
0: okay yeah we're gonna watch those i'm sure now that she'll listen to this podcast she
1: my wife's a big wine lover so that's cool do they have wineries in cyprus they do yeah actually um they have a, they have quite a few of them. And that was one of my uh, thoughts is like a, a side hustle slash way of, um, you know, spending some time would be to put together a wine tour and, uh, and go around showing people the different wineries and things like that. They're actually very well known for their wine. They have a, a big wine festival there every year.
0: Well, there you go. There's another way that you would become more like me as you age, because I had this idea when I went to Scotland. I was on a tour of the Highlands and the guy was telling me that he retired to become a tour guide. And so I always had it in the back of my head. And then a few years ago I was in Prague with a buddy of mine and we were sitting at a cafe and he said, man, you've taken care of everything. You've cut out all the bullshit. You ought to turn this into a business. And so that's why I tour people around central Eastern Europe is, is from that conversation. So, um, that is part of, that's one of my retirement gigs. So, man, that's great. So my last question for you what are you most grateful for?
1: Mm that's a great question. Um I'm most it's it's hard to say one thing because uh because I am grateful for a lot of things. I um I try to be mindful of all the um the great things that I have going on in my life. There are some things that obviously like everybody else there are drawbacks to, but um I have great health. Um I have uh, great mindfulness as far as like being able to, to pursue financial independence and to be able to dedicate my life, essentially the past few years of my life to this, to this idea. Um, but most of all, I, um, I'm grateful for a wife that is willing to go on all these uh, ridiculous journeys with me as far as, um, you know, moving houses and getting rid of all of our items, driving old cars, and also being focused on physical health with me. Um, without, without her, uh, I, would, I would not be on this path at all because um, she is the biggest motivator to me that, that anything could ever happen.
0: That's great. So you have all these aspirational pursuits, yet you recognize that gratitude and generosity and a solid relationship with your wife are proven sources of contentment. I love that. So the book that I was talking about earlier, The Geometry of Wealth, I have my notes next to me. And it says that ancient and modern thinkers share the same dualistic understanding of happiness. And I'm I'm going to read this because it pertains to something you mentioned earlier. On the one hand, experienced happiness considers the day-to-day, even moment by moment, even um, the effect or mood. And given how the brain is wired, this is the dominant manifestation of human happiness. On the other, reflective happiness, or what the ancient Greeks called eudaimonia engages a broader sense of whether one is living a good or meaningful life and understanding how to shape a life of money and meaning is impossible without this distinction and i think you're doing a great job of that so i wanted to read that man i really enjoyed having you on the podcast dude this is this is one of my favorites um how can people find out more about you
1: um, of- yes. So we're, uh, we're on rethink the rat We're also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, all of the above. We're more active on, uh, on Instagram and Twitter than we are on Facebook. But, um, but yeah, that's where you can find out more about us. Follow along, uh, with all the crazy things that we have happening in our life. That's awesome. And
0: I'll link to those in my show notes. And with that, I'll take us out. Thank you friends for tuning in. I never take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time listening to us. So, Whether you're in the car, or working out, or painting a house, (laughs) wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I appreciate it. Please subscribe on iTunes if you haven't already. Also, you can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.